Welcome back to another episode of Vault Evaluation. In this episode, Chris and I had the chance to sit down with Connor at Investment Talk. We pretty much go through what is his investment style, kind of how he got to where he is, what Investment Talk is and all that stuff. And I found this conversation with him really interesting. It was nice to get someone else's perspective that's right around the same age as us and also someone that is born and raised outside of the U.S. Yeah, I agree, Austin. I think I've been talking to Connor for about nine to 10 months now. And originally, I followed him on Twitter because I really liked his tweets and what he had to say. And I thought he was much older, to be honest. So I, I DM'd him a couple questions, like what I thought of what he thought about this, what he thought about that. And he ended up following me back at one point. And we just kind of kicked it off from there. Um, not only it's kind of evolved into a friendship, but an investing friendship. And I think the way that we're building this podcast is we kind of want to relate to our audience too. And having Connor be the first podcast interview is going to relate with a lot of people because he's got a very, very large base, um, a very prominent base. And I think he is going to be a great value add, super excited. Um, we had a great time and I think he will definitely be on in the future too. So stay tuned. Yeah, I think uh, each of you will find something of value in this conversation that we have with Connor. I really enjoyed it. I know Chris did as well and may have him on back again for another episode. But with that being said, let's get into the episode. All opinions expressed by Austin and Chris or any guests on the podcast are solely their own opinions and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. Austin and Chris or any guests on the podcast may maintain positions in the securities discussed. Welcome back to another episode of Vault Evaluation. I am your host, Christopher Bardo, aka Fiducia Invest. And with me, we have Lamani Trades, aka Austin Lamont. And then a special guest, one of our first interviewees, Connor McNeil from Ocasio Capital and Investment Talk on Twitter. Connor, thank you for coming. Thank you for being on the show. Um, I've read pretty much all of the interviews that you have done. Uh, written about. They're phenomenal. And Austin and I wanted to bring you on to talk your book, ask you a few questions that were really interested in getting to know you even better. And I'm sure the rest of Twitter wants to hear about your story and your finance world as well. So thank you for coming. Yeah. Thanks for having me on as the first guest as well. It means a lot. Looking forward to it. Awesome. So we'll just get straight into it. Question one, given your age, the same as Austin and I, when did you first get started investing and how? And what were kind of the main drivers of becoming interested in buying and selling and researching businesses in the public markets? Yeah, um, it's a good question. Like, I think I've said it a few times in other podcasts, so I'll give kind of like a synopsis. But basically, like my interest stemmed originally from just businesses in general. And I was quite fascinated by the concept of money when I was younger, not necessarily having a lot of money, but just kind of how that medium of exchange worked and how it kind of like influenced everything that happened in the world. So during secondary school, which is like high school in the UK, and I forget what the equivalent is in the US, but it'd be like 12th or third grade, we started taking business classes and I just consumed all the ones they had. Well, that was the first ever time that I found myself doing like extracurricular stuff outside of school because it was a, a genuine interest and, you know, it didn't feel like work. Um, 
and the grades kind of match that as well. But yeah, that, that was like when I partnered that with my interest for kind of money and how that influences the world, I ended up um, studying economics at university for four years. And then, you know, how monetary policy works and global trade and I kind of, you know, encapsulated me more. But what I found was that I'm less interested in the economic side and a lot of the modules that we were taking on corporate finance and, you know, basic accounting and stuff like that. That was what I was more interested in. So about halfway through my degree, um, that's when I started investing. I would have been probably 18, just turning 19 at the time and started dabbling in public markets badly. Um, it was mainly just kind of the stuff I was interested in at the time and then, you know, finding out what kind of companies did things related to that and then just buying them blindly. But, you know, everyone has to go through that. But yeah, I would say the original interest stemmed from an interest of business and money. And then when I started studying economics, I realized, yeah, it's like investing that I'm really interested in. Um, it's just kind of like, there's so much to it. There's like the mental aspect of it, which I've always found really interesting. I really liked playing poker at university and that's kind of like a mental game. And it's also just that continuous learning cycle. You're never really bored when you're flicking through 10Ks and learning about new industries and companies. So it keeps me engaged academically. Um, and it also, you know, it's a fun process and eventually, you know, you can make some good money doing it as well. Yeah, that's, that's awesome to hear. Um, one thing I've always been curious about is given that you're from the UK and we're both from the US, have you seen any differences in like the way people are taught in the finance industry coming up through high school and university and things of that nature? And do you see that bleed into kind of their personality traits, whether it be, you know, are there differences in how risk reward trade-offs work based upon where you grow up geographically? Yeah. So, so for me, the born and then I came back to Scotland when I was 12. So most of my, you know, um, adolescence was in Scotland. And what I saw was generally in the UK, I think it's kind of changing now, but it's like taboo to talk about money and your salary and investing and savings and all that kind of stuff. Whereas in the US, you know, it's something that you talk about openly and candidly, um, whatever the situation is. But in the, the UK, the culture is a little bit different now. We're supposedly more risk adverse. Um, I don't know if that has anything to do with a cultural thing or if you look at the FTSE it's just kind of full of energy and big dividend payers and you know nothing exciting in there but yeah people are typically more risk averse when they're younger kind of 18 but like I could go on I could go in loads of rabbit holes here but like people are risk averse when it comes to money but then like with other things they'll they'll splash money on you know silly things you know I was always quite a heavy saver even at a young age I worked since I was 14 I was paid in cash and I was just like obsessed with storing cash and uh, little money packets and keeping them and trying to save and then when I found investing that was kind of like the best outlet for that to pour all my savings in there and just you know start accumulating wealth but I think it's a cultural thing really like in the in the US I think maybe I think it's 50% or more of households are involved in the equity market you know Whereas in the UK, if you put pensions and stuff aside, it's maybe 10 to 15%. Um, you'll have people my age that own bonds, like government bonds that don't even pay interest. They just pay like raffle tickets to potentially win money, like some weird kind of construct there, but they just view them as a safe place to put your money instead of a bank account. So it's, it's a different dynamic. Mm -hmm. But I always felt growing up, I was 
not isolated, but like I had those interests and nobody really around me had those interests. So, you know, eventually when I found Twitter, that was a great outlet there to kind of connect with other people. Yeah. Twitter has been fantastic for connecting with other people. I mean, that's essentially how we met was through Twitter. I started following you last year and then we started to get to know each other on a more personal level and investment level. So I would love for you to walk us through your strategy, idea generation, and kind of your brief thoughts on the growth and value investing and how you tailor your portfolio towards that. Because I really like your portfolio setup. I really like the weightings that you have. I feel like, I feel like your portfolio is a lot different than most people that I've seen. Um, you own kind of like a sweet spot of names too on the portfolio that you have publicly. So walk us through that. Sure. So I was actually listening to your uh, episode two of growth, growth and value yesterday. I kind of echo a lot of the stuff you both said, you know, it's, it's really a matter of expectations. I understand the rationale between growth and value, but I don't really consider myself any of the bucket. I'll just buy anything that I think can have a good return. But that was a really great episode. So if anyone listening hasn't listened to that, I would suggest you do. Um, but yeah, my strategy is simple. Like I appreciate other people that have different strategies, but for me, like the main things are the first thing is always do I understand the business and can I understand the other market participants? Do I understand the market structure and kind of to their pricing power? Is it an oligopoly? Is it monopoly? Is it kind of, you know, monopolistic? All that kind of stuff, all those dynamics. Like that's the first thing I try to understand first. And I'll try to understand, you know, each different company in that market's place and who I think the potential winners are. Because in, in a lot of cases, there might be a few big winners. I'm not always trying to hit out the park and find the one winner of something. So number one is always, can I understand the, the market, the market structure, and can I, can I have a, a reasonable kind of understanding of each of the businesses in there, whether that be kind of in my core circle of competence or you know slightly outside of it. So I'm reaching, but you know that's a great place to learn, to pull new things into your circle of competence. So number one is something I can understand. And, you know, kind of if you take a, a bracket under that, usually I'm looking for something that is either a market leader um, with kind of low um, perceived risk of being penetrated, might be kind of like an oligopoly. So something, you know, big, and it's been a market leader, or at least in top three for a while, and there's, there's high barriers to entry, you know, it's unlikely they're going to get disrupted. So that's something interesting, you know, something like Starbucks, very boring, very mundane, but they have a kind of like a quote unquote monopoly on coffee. I know there's, you know, thousands of independent chains, but there's nothing that's directly competing with Starbucks globally for the most part. Um, and it's going to be hard to penetrate that. It's like the argument of if you give someone X billion dollars, would they be able to rival Starbucks in 10 years? Like most often the answer is going to be no. I like the management there as well. Yeah, so you have a market leader that's kind of leading the race or isn't is in the front footing and it doesn't look like they're going to get penetrated there. But under that circumstance, I always like to have a catalyst. I don't want to buy something that's just sitting on top of the, you know, there's no second act. They might be a great company, but I don't know what's going to come next or, you know, how they're going to continue maintaining that kind of share of the market for something like Starbucks. They're currently going through a period where they're kind of transitioning into a, a more hybrid model centered around digital. And there's a lot of margin expansion opportunities there. They're also still growing quite heavily in China, you know, which is a blessing and also a curse as well. Um, so that's kind of like the slow burning catalyst there. So, you know, 
can appreciate that. I can understand that. And I don't mind having a decent chunk of my money parked in there. Something else I always look for as well is if there's a market participant that looks like it's going to be a future market leader and I have a reasonably high kind of perception that I think they're going to make it to the top, got long run tailwinds coming behind it, something like Square or PayPal, a bit harder to understand because of the technicality of the industry. I won't lie and say that I fully 100% understand traditional banks, balance sheets. I have owned banks in the past, but found them quite hard to understand. Um, but yeah, something that looks like it's going to be penetrating a new industry and making its way to the top over the next five, 10 years. Um, and then that's like the two core brackets I look for to be safe. Um, and if, if you were to look for my portfolio, you'd probably see a bunch of companies that are at the top and a bunch of companies that may well be at the top in the next five, five years. I'll typically look for like a three to five year outlook as well. I do ideally want to be in something for like, you know, 10, 20 years, but that's just not realistic. Whenever I'm making an assumption, it'll be for three to five years. Do I think the money that I'm putting in today is, you know, be safe for the next three to five years? Do I think the company's going to be progressing in that time? And at the end of that, I'll, I'll readdress it and see if I want to continue holding. So they're the two kind of core brackets that I'll look at. And then otherwise, like, I don't like to pigeonhole myself into a group. Like, I'll look at anything if I can see a return in it. Like, some people say, like, their portfolio is like a, a VC style allocation, which I respect. I wouldn't say I'm, um, like, kind of in that same bucket there. But I do will look at kind of one-off situations where if I feel it's going to get a re-rate, um, or if I feel that I understand the opportunity well enough to kind of make a, a shorter term profit, then my outlook might shrink a little bit from three years. You know, I don't really have any interest in kind of the casino space, but last year, and this is super, you know, biased as well, but last year there was so many opportunities up there where you had like MGM resorts, which is trading for like 60 pence on the dollar of sales. And, you know, it was, it was kind of, everything was just getting thrown out the window and that to me just looked like a company with a super solid balance sheet with no debt maturing for the next three or four years which I thought was kind of a long enough period until this COVID thing ended and I'll be honest like I had no idea I didn't know if it would be done in six months in six years but I thought three to four years probably look a bit better by then so yeah that was like a situation where I saw a company with a strong balance sheet I thought I'd probably get re-rated at some point in the next three to five years um, so I bought a, a fairly decent sized position in that. It ended up getting re-rated a lot sooner than I thought. I think I held it for less than a year and it went up maybe 100, 120% um, and just got rid of it. But the important thing there was, you know, I had a, when I was buying it, I had a kind of price in mind when I was going to on holding it. Um, for quote unquote forever until the, the, the sale thesis is broken. But sometimes I don't mind just jumping into a position with a kind of predefined ideal kind of sell point and then, you know, hoping to make a kind of shorter term return there. But that's probably the three main buckets. So you've got like a market leader, someone that's chasing a market leader and will probably become the market leader in future. And then also just the third bucket is just random. If I can see value anywhere, I'll jump in and try and take it. And your last question on growth and value, I really don't care if we're, if we're talking about myself, I really don't care if I'm buying something that's quote unquote growth or quote unquote value, like I'll buy match group, 
that I would call them a, you know, a semi-monopoly. They're not obviously a monopoly, but they have a huge market share of dating globally and also just a massive ARPU situation now where they can grow that considerably over the next five years. You know, that thing is growing at about 18 to 21% each year, which some people might, you know, balk at and not think that's impressive. But for the price you pay versus the kind of the relative safety you get of your capital, I think that's fine. And I also don't mind buying something like Peloton um, that's growing at like, you know, triple digits a year. If you can understand the value proposition, doesn't really matter whether what pace it's growing at, I think, yeah, for me. Yeah, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. So if I heard it correctly, it's almost as if you enter an investment based upon the characteristics of the business and management. So whether or not they have a moat, the high barriers of entry, solid management in our product or service that they can offer um, and is differentiated. So when it comes to that and it comes to you reevaluating those investments, how do you kind of take in that new information, whether or not, because you, if you don't have a price target for it, how do you take in that new information from you know, the time you bought to the time you're reevaluating to really decide should I allocate more? Should I cut some? Or should I completely get this out of my portfolio? Yeah, great question. So like step one, when you've, you've understood the market, you understood the business, you understand competitors, and then it comes to like an allocation question, how much of, you know, how much of this do I want to have waited to? And then, you know, also when would I sell this? Along the way, that kind of brings up other questions. You know, if it's, if it's ran up a lot, when, when would I trim this and all that kind of stuff? So to start at the beginning, like I always do have some kind of time horizon in mind. And typically that's just three to five years. And that's not when I'm going to sell it. That's ideally when I'm going to revisit and see um, how things are going and what I think and how it's doing relative to all the other positions and if there are better opportunities and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, usually I'll slap three to five years on it and I'll have a thesis in mind. So when I'm first looking into it and I understand the company a bit before I do an extra kind of deeper dive, um, I'll have like questions in mind that I want to answer and the answers will be in all the, the stuff that I'm looking at. And if I can answer all those questions and understand them and it's kind of, you know, it goes towards the, the long thesis and I'll, and I'll buy it. And then throughout the holding period, it's really just a matter of, you know, reading the quarterlies and just is the thesis broken or not? And if it's not, I'll continue holding. And you really have to challenge yourself on that because I think the easiest person to fool is yourself. So as soon as you buy a position, sometimes even before that, you're going to like slide a pair of rose tinted glasses onto your face and you're going to see everything a lot differently. You know, as someone that actually goes to Starbucks every day, whenever I read the quarterlies, you know, there's that subconscious urge to kind of read everything that's maybe potentially bad and just gloss over it because you like management, you like the company, you have X percent of your net worth tied up into this company. But that's like the biggest thing that I try to avoid. So every every quarter you're just really retesting and seeing if any parts of your core thesis are broken. If one of them looks to be broken, then you know you really have to dig deep and ask yourself, do I want to continue holding this or do I want to give it another a quarter? And then at that point, if you feel that you do have to sell for me, I just take all the emotion out of it, whether I'm down 20% or up 90% on the position, I'll sell it and just move on. And I've done that in the past with positions that I felt could still continue to go on, but I just felt compelled to sell them um, for whatever reason. And then in other cases, so that's the most part. And in other cases, I will just have a predefined price. So like with MGM, 
I was really just waiting for it to get back to its pre-COVID valuation or multiple, which was roughly double what it was when I bought it. And it got there within like nine months. Um, and I, th I think at the time, I have notes, but I have to reread them. But I think at the time, I waited an extra two months because the period of the market, like everything growth was getting hammered and everything quote unquote value was doing well. So I wanted to keep that in the portfolio there a bit to kind of reduce the standard variation of all my other growth stuff that was just getting knocked around. So yeah, there's a bit of gut in there as well. Like usually I would just sell it, but you know, not trying to time the market, but just based on the current situation, I just held on to it for a little bit longer. And you know, that could have went either way. It went, it went well, but yeah, that's something to think about. But I think generally for me, I just try and keep it simple. When you buy something, you have a thesis, you have a time horizon. If it continues to kind of follow along that track record, provided no other competitors kind of eating away at it, then you can continue holding it regardless of what the returns are. You know, I think back in 2018, I bought Apple and I think within two weeks, it just got creamed by 30%, which is, you know, shocking, but nothing really material had changed. That was when the whole China thing was going on. And you could argue that with, you know, the China disruption that could actually material impact Apple because they have a lot of stuff going on in China, but yeah, there's a whole, and it's, you know, done pretty well ever since. I, yeah, that's basically the whole of it. I'm not really into kind of chopping and changing and rotating too much. When it comes to trimming, the only time I'll trim is if a position becomes so large that I'd no longer feel comfortable with the allocation. Um, and that factors in things like valuation and stuff as well. So like C Limited, for example, fantastic company, managed to buy that fairly cheap. I can't remember the exact price, but I think it was maybe between 100 and 115, somewhere abouts. So I bought that as a 5% position. It went up quite a lot and then it became a 10% position. And I just, at the valuation that it was at that point, I just, and also when you just look at the business relative to the quality of all the other businesses, in my portfolio, I just didn't want it to be 10% of my net worth. So I just shaved it back down to 5%. That might be a bad idea, but honestly, for me, I'll reassess that in maybe like three or five years time. There's no point judging it based on kind of six months worth of price action. Yeah, no, those are great points. I agree with essentially all of them. And that's kind of the issue that I ran into with Cloudflare, right? I know you sold uh, CrowdStrike and you got people harped on you on Twitter for it a little bit, but I think the way that people are looking at it is, yeah, we sold, it, I shaved a lot, you sold, and it continues to go up in the short term, but that is just the short term. We might be right in a year and the names that we put our capital in and allocate towards mines, my tech and iTerras. I don't know what you ended up throwing those funds into, but over the next three years, I think the risk reward lies in those two names over Cloudflare, because I think Cloudflare is pretty much fully priced. And I think the price action today is kind of proving my point. So yeah, I think you were spot on with that. And I tend to agree with all of it. Um, anything else you'd like to add there? Yeah. So like someone said, I think it was Chris Seifel got hounded yesterday or something. It was just like, he made this funny comment that was like, gotcha Twitter. And it's just like, it's so easy just to look at a few months worth of price action and just be like, ah, ha, ha, you're wrong. And like, mm -hmm. you know, I can take that as funny and stuff, but like, there's no real uh, value that comes from that really. Like it's a, it's a personal thing. Like, and for context on that, for me, I was about to make Facebook my biggest position and when I was looking at CrowdStrike that ran up quite a lot in a year, like close to 200%, I think it was maybe 185. And at the time I actually worked with a pretty big global company 
that used CrowdStrike and I'd spoken to engineers and asked them to take me through it and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we'd spend a few hours doing that and I was asking them questions. And then after that, I was like, I really do not understand the intricacies of this business. I understood the core business of CrowdStrike, kind of where they were, the fundamentals, the, the potential for kind of margin expansion and operating cash flow just exploding um, with that like super subscription business. So I understood that perfectly fine, but then I just started becoming uncomfortable with my lack of understanding of the market as a whole. And then, you know, it's hard to say when there's no kind of conviction testing moments, like CrowdStrike didn't dump 50% or nothing like that. I just content continued running up. But at the point where I just started feeling comfortable, um, that's when I decided to sell because, you know, regardless of whether it was up 50%, 200%, down 10%, you know, just started to move capital around. And I actually reallocated most of that into Facebook and just made it kind of a, a flagship position in the portfolio. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes complete sense. And I know you've been on the Facebook train for some time now. I owned, unfortunately, years ago, I bought Facebook at $93 a share just because I used the platform. And I ultimately ended up selling, I think, at about 194 so it was in the Roth IRA and obviously I should have held it, but I want to dive into Ocasio Capital. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about it. Where do you see Ocasio in five years without giving us too much of the secret sauce? Um, and what are your plans for them? Basically, just talk your book of business. Yeah. So probably it's probably slightly confusing with me calling it that, but when I first started um, the investment talk newsletter uh, that was, I don't know how familiar all your listeners are with kind of UK tax law, but that was like, it was good. I could do that for a year. Actually, as it started to grow, I had to, um, do something for tax efficiency or just be, yeah. Um, so it's for tax efficiency reasons. I started a business. I didn't want to call it investment talk cause I had plans to do other things with it. And I didn't want it to be, you know, um, just strictly related to a newsletter name. So I called it a castle capital. And interestingly enough, I actually started a business called Ocasio Capital on Christmas Eve of 2019. So two years prior to me officially launching it. So like one New Year's Eve on Christmas Eve in 2019, probably had a couple of drinks. And I was just feeling a bit creative. I just decided to create a business and it's very easy to do that in the UK. I think you pay £12, which is probably like $16, $20 now. And you can register a business, give it a name, and all that kind of stuff. And I like the name. So I wanted to kind of bookmark that. And for me personally, those are the kind of weird things I do to kind of motivate myself to go on and do something. I had no idea what I wanted to do with that business. I just liked the name and I knew that I wanted to do something kind of investment related. So I booked the name and just kept it there and then left it dormant for two years. And then two years later, you know, this opportunity popped up and I was like, oh, well, I've already created that and like subconsciously I feel like that motivated me to do something and create something. So yeah, Ocasio Capital is really just the name of the holding company which holds everything in it that I do and whether that's kind of contract work for other companies. I'm doing some work in a startup just now um, in addition to investment talk and then also the core part of it is just investment talk as well. So it just allows funds to flow into it and then tax efficiencies to flow out of it and that kind of stuff. Um, so that's like the overview of what it actually is. And I don't want it to be too confusing in case someone thought I was like running money under it. Um, like a firm with AUM, my portfolio is totally separate from that. I don't link the two. 
it's not super easy to do that in the UK. So yeah, that's basically what it is, just a holding company for kind of everything I do under that brand. And then also in some other places as well. I was going to say, when you said talk your book of business, um, I assume that's what you meant. So Yeah, no, that's exactly it. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah, I was going to say that's that's very interesting. I kind of do the same thing when it comes to setting goals. If I make something material out of it, and especially if I put it out in the public, it kind of gives me that guardrail to say, hey, you need to do something with this or you just this stuff and it's Fugazi. And then not only does it kind of hurt my own like self-reputation, but then it doesn't look as good if I'm not acting upon something that I'm putting out publicly. So I kind of do that same thing where it's like, build something material from it and then follow through with it because now it's kind of like you have to, but mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's really interesting how you kind of, how you set up Ocasio or Ocasio um, capital. What do you kind of have as the expectations or the plans that's going forward? Let's say like the next five years. Yeah. So like originally when I made it, I don't know what the reverse of making something dormant is, but like when I opened it back up and made it official, like through tax and that kind of stuff, it was really just a place to hold everything, all the um, revenues for investment talk. And then just by being present on Twitter quite a lot, like it opened up some other opportunities, which are quite cool. So now stuff like that flows through it too. Like long-term goals, I'd probably say more focused towards the investment talk newsletter, which I've been doing for about one, one and a half years now. And that's just like a constant process of evolving and kind of understanding what works and what doesn't like for example this year i'm just trying to cut all the verbosity like make everything a lot shorter and more concise because i feel like it's less daunting for people to read you know 40 (laughs) pages of which is nice and you know but a lot of it it just doesn't resonate with a reader so that's kind of just it's like a constant iteration of that and the long-term goal is really just the goal it's been from when i first started doing it and just to be able to do this is my sole focus and have that be my you know, primary source of income, which it currently is, and believe it probably will be over the next three to five years. I don't have any plans to stop. And hopefully I'm just hoping that kind of compounding tailwinds help build and grow that over time. Yeah. So like when I, when I left my job and started doing that full time, I had a lot of, I had a lot of free time that wasn't used to, cause I used to do, I used to do investment talk around a full-time job which was pretty crazy. So when I got rid of that, I just had like all this time and the amount of time that I used to put into investment talk was still the same, but I could spread it around a bit more. So I felt like I had extra time. So that kind of let me be able to be a bit more free creatively and also, you know, work with other people. And, you know, right now I'm just like working with a company in New York and it's, it's really fun. Um, and it's just teaching me things. So yeah, basically long-term goal is just to keep learning things, connecting with really smart people, and then just keep plugging away at investment talk and hopefully building a kind of strong community around that and improving the quality, you know, every month. Who's uh, one person you want to have on it that you haven't yet? That's a really good question. And that's thrown me by surprise. I think there's one person actually that I reached out to and said he'd be willing to do it, but obviously just busy guys. So we'll get around to it at one point, but Ian Castle, the kind of founder of Intelligent Finance Capital Management, and he also founded the Microcap Club as well. I'm not strictly in Microcap, but I love Ian Castle's work and I read quite a lot of it. He has a big archive going back maybe more than a decade on the Microcap Club. And, you know, whenever I've got time to kill, I'll just jump on there and, you know, read something that he wrote back in 2014, 2015, and just find value from it. So 
I'd love to have him on, but I feel like he may be on it in the future. Yeah, it's an interesting one because they're written format and some people hate that, but some people tell me they prefer it. You end it and you think, oh, I wish I'd said this. I forgot to say this. Um, so mm-hmm. it kind of removes that. But I think eventually I would like to make them audio. Like the only reason they were written initially is because I didn't have time to do loads of interviews because I was working full time. So now I have all the time. I feel like in the future, there'll probably be audio and we might phase out the written ones, but still mm-hmm. have transcripts. But yeah. If my opinion matters at all to you, oh, I does. love I love the written ones. I'm not going to say confirm or deny, but I think if somebody really wants, I mean, the people that you've had on investor wise is it's phenomenal. I mean, it's accounts that I thought you would never get on there and they've been mm-hmm. on there. And I think the written interview, being able to print it out and take notes, highlight things, put it in a binder and kind of tailor. I mean, I tailor my strategy every single day, trading and investing. So being able to extrapolate how other investors think and kind of tailor it to your own discipline, I think that's huge. Whereas audio, I feel like you kind of listen to it one time and then you move on. Unless you have a great, great memory and you can remember everything they said, I love printing things off and reading it and highlighting and kind of tailoring uh, my strategy. So I love the written interviews. I think it's, I think it was a great idea to do those. Oh, thanks. It's a good point though. Like, and it brings you back to like, someone said, write for the audience that you want, not the one you've got. Like I personally prefer written ones as well. I don't read, I don't listen to earnings calls. I read them all, which I know there's a benefit of listening, but I like, that's how I process things. And also you, you can store it and um, it just feels more storable. Was an audio one. I rarely listen to a podcast twice or like a, a YouTube interview twice, unless it's really good. Um, but yeah, it's a really good point. So kind of changing gears, if you weren't working in the finance or finance related industry, what would you want to be doing? I think, so like my biggest passion, like like focal points, is just like family, my partner, investing and food. Um, I love traveling as well, but like food is probably the second biggest, you know, non-human related passion I have. Cooking, eating, Um, but particularly cooking like it's quite therapeutic for me whether you're just making like a Turkish omelet or you're cooking something a bit more complex I like the the planning things I'm just super passionate about it and what I find is the same way that I love to kind of interact with people that are interested in the stock market and investing it's the kind of I get that same joy from talking about people who are you know passionate about food and have been somewhere that I've not tried and they're telling me about it or so yeah, I'd probably be involved in food in some way. I couldn't be a chef because as much as I love cooking, I'm not one for, you know, just forcing myself into high pressure environments. Like it's probably why my investing style is the way it is, but I couldn't be a chef. So I'd probably be doing something around content creation um, and food for sure. Like, I don't know, probably have a food TikTok channel or something. Just- Are you sure you're not related to Chris? <laughs> we have yeah, no, the same like- exact interests. Well, you guys can start a food channel together <laughs> or, a, or a food, a food blog, but I'm, I'm getting hungry now. I know I'm starving. <laughs> I love good food. You can't beat good food. That's the only reason at the end of the day that I trade and want to make money is family and good food and travel. So yeah, the intertwine as well. I'd say like my, probably one of my biggest experiences is just food. Chris, same, same here. Um, 
I need to stop eating out as much, but it's kind of like you work hard in other areas and you save in other areas so that you can spend more in these other areas that you find enjoyment from. So, you know, one point of me is like, yeah, I could be eating out less and putting that money into my portfolio. But then the other part of me is like, how unhappy will I be? Are there any areas in finance and investing that you really want to learn more about? Like if you could take a week on your own and just focus on that, what, what area would that be? Whether it be kind of different industries, technical knowledge. I know you don't use any charts or technical analysis like I do and Austin does at all, or any new ways of looking at companies and, and breaking down their data. Yeah. Um, interesting point that you made as well, like about the technical side. So like, thankfully now, like when you said, take a week out and just focus on something, I can actually do that now. I used to be quite frustrated that I couldn't do that with work, but now, you know, I can just clear a schedule and just focus on something for an entire, an entire week. And I think much to what you said, technical is probably an area that I'm most interested in. You know, we can, <clears throat> we can talk about industries and there's a lot of industries that I know nothing about that will eventually kind of try and pull within the outer limits of my circle of competence. But I think technical is probably one of the areas that I'm most interested in. I do dabble, but I don't kind of throw AUM behind it. It's always kind of, you know, using a bit of intuition and seeing if whatever I thought was right or wrong but there's never any capital thrown behind it. Um, and obviously learned quite a lot about that from you as well, Chris. Like, I really appreciate that you have one uber concentrated, you know, sizable core portfolio. And now on the side, you also just have like a crazy income generating trading account, you know, with a mixture of just kind of like long positions and derivatives. And that's something that, you know, in a few years when I've kind of got things a bit more settled, that's eventually what I see myself doing, just having a kind of a core portfolio where I'm, you know, probably 80% of the attention is focused and then just having a smaller non-leveraged kind of quote unquote trading account. Cause I think it takes away that urge to do something from your core account as well. So like for me, like if I've not done anything for a few quarters, I don't really mind, but you know, when it, when it drones on for like a year, you know, you think, should I be doing something? And I think in the past guilty of moving things around just for the, the sake of it. And, you know, you incur costs for that. And then there's also opportunity costs to consider as well. And you're just kind of interrupting compounding. So I think, you know, over the next few years, it will probably be trying to learn more about the technical side and then, you know, trying to generate alpha in other ways, apart from just having a, a core long portfolio. I support you 100% on that endeavor. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I think uh, you have these camps or dynamics where it comes to, fundamental analysis versus technical analysis, I would think it's not wise to use just one or the other or put all of your eggs in one camp. But then again, it's, it's interesting. Technical is more so the, you know, following personality traits. And if they bake those into prices and fundamentals, more of that calculation of intrinsic value and how they merge together into the future. With that, I think this has been an awesome interview. I think every listener will get a lot of value for that from this. Uh, and for every guest that we're going to have on, want to go through just three of the same exact questions at the very end uh, and kind of do like a speed round. So kind of one of those first questions we wanted to ask is what's something you wish you knew five years ago that you do today? I 
probably say it's okay to take a loss. Like I was a huge bag holder when I first started investing, like I'd buy something and then it would, you know, fall like 30, 40%. Bear in mind, I was buying like absolute garbage, like small caps, like CBD companies. I just didn't have any clue what I was doing, but I kind of misassociated that with Ben Graham's like hold until the thesis breaks. And I, you know, realistically, I just didn't have a thesis, like buying crap just to kind of experiment. Um, and you blind yourself to that when you're initially investing. But yeah, I think early on, don't be afraid to take a loss, like whether it's 30%, 50%, 5%, if you're up 5%, you know, whatever it is, don't be afraid to sell something if the if thesis is broken. And ideally, before you got into that situation, you would have allocated a, a suitable position size beforehand so that you can kind of offset some of that risk. You know, if I'm buying something that even myself, you would be quite speculative. Um, you know, there's a lot of underpinnings to the thesis that may or may not come true. You know, I'm not going to go and wait that at 10% just because I think you know, the upside is potentially huge. When I'm, when I'm taking a bigger position, the, the fo- thing I'm focusing on is really the downside, but it's like you read about things, but they just don't, they don't get absorbed in your kind of mental state until you've experienced them. Yeah. It's almost like you have to experience that loss, whether it be monetary or, you know, just personal loss to kind of have that, you know, mentality ingrained into you in your investment style. And then One other question kind of to round this out. Uh, Do you have any good book, TV show, or movie recommendations for the listeners? Yeah. um, So films, probably like everyone's seen it, but I recently just watched the Batman trilogy, um, Nolan's ones. They're amazing. Everyone's always told me to watch them, um, but I only just watched them like last week and they're fantastic. So if you've not seen those, you should watch it books honestly i've not really read many books this year i read remnants of a a stock operator stock market operator that was quite good kind of funky um earlier in the year i read something as well i can't remember like over the last year two years like the only thing i've really been reading is like 10ks and sell side reports and like just all that kind of stuff like i just don't have time for quote-unquote pleasurable reading anymore so i don't have any good book recommendations Oh, I did actually read one book at the start of the year. It was called When the Fund Stops. And it's about a UK fund manager that basically just blows up his whole book buying kind of private, small cap, janky companies. And the way he structures his portfolio makes it seem like he has a suitable asset allocation. But that book's really good. I forget his name. It might be Terry something, um, but it takes like two days to read and it's super quick. Uh, TV shows. I don't watch TV too much, but you know, one thing that I do watch all the time and it's quite out there is RuPaul's Drag Race. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but it's insanely funny. My partner showed me it and it's just kind of a, a good tie between, you know, good competition, like striking really great artists, humility, and you also just get to learn about a community that I don't personally really interact with quite a lot. So there's, there's quite a lot of emotional points in there that just kind of make you realize you know everyone's situation is different so i definitely recommend watching that if you've never seen it before but yeah other than that what go watch batman i agree with that nolan definitely has the best the best batman movies out there and then i just want to back up for a second because you said you read 10ks (laughs) no i was only kidding i don't read 10ks (laughs) (laughs) just wanted to make sure i heard you right on there for the listeners Hey, sometimes they can be pretty interesting. Um, but they can. But, I agree. I second that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll 
use this last amount of time to open it up for you, Connor. And uh, if there's any closing thoughts. I'm super excited to kind of see what you two do with this podcast. I know this is only going to be the third episode, but I really like the style. Like my favorite kind of podcast is just two people talking. Like I love Bill Brewster's one, The Business Brew. I like the Acquirers podcast. Because it's just really just, you know, two people kind of cutting the expletive and just talking about markets. So I'm looking forward to seeing what you both do. And lastly, where can our listeners find you if they're not following you today? Everything related to me can be found on my Twitter account, which is at Investment Talk with two Ks on the end. And I think pretty much everything will be linked over there. So Awesome. I think that's a wrap. Thank you, Connor, for coming on today. I really enjoyed this. I know I can speak for both Chris and I. And stay tuned next week when we drop another episode. Peace.